Over the next few weeks, we will be interviewing the authors from the collaborative book, The Grief Experience, Tools for Acceptance, Resilience, and Connection, which is set to release in February of 2024. These authors have each experienced their own unique grief journey and will be sharing their personal stories with us. We will also explore the specific tools they used to cope with their grief and how these tools can benefit others who may be going through similar experiences. Grief is a complex and challenging process, and each person's experience is different. By sharing our stories and tools, we hope to provide support, guidance, and comfort to those navigating their grief journey. Each author has experienced different types of loss and comes from a variety of backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences. As a result, they offer valuable insights and perspectives. We are honored to have them join us on this podcast series and to share their stories and tools with you, our Path 11 podcast listeners. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. We have another great show for you today. We have Christy Capriglione. I love that last name. We had a chance to talk about her ethnicity a little bit, but it's got a little bit of Italian in there, which you guys know my family is uh, from Italy, so love to say her last name. So she is a licensed professional counselor with over 15 years of experience in the field of mental health. Through the course of her career, Christy has worked with both those facing with their own death, as well as those who are grieving the loss of their loved one. Christy earned a post-master's certificate in thanatology from Hood College and is trained as an end-of-life doula through the International End-of-Life Doula Association. Christy is the proud owner of Daylight Grief, a private practice focusing on grief and loss in Denville, New Jersey. So for our New Jersey listeners, if you live in or around that area and are looking for a therapist, we will find out if she has any openings or if she's accepting new clients. But we're giving you a resource all the way out in Denville, New Jersey. And here at her private practice, she provides individual and group therapy for adults who have experienced the death of a loved one. At her practice, Christy established a hiking with grief group. Sounds amazing. Can't wait to learn about that. And that integrates mindfulness and ecotherapy into the grief counseling process. That is so unique. This is the first I've heard of somebody doing something like that. And when she is not hiking on the trail, she can be found on the water kayaking, paddleboarding, or on the land searching for the best ice cream and pizza around. So Christy, welcome to the Path 11 podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Christy is actually one of the 25 authors who is also joining me in writing this collaborative book called The Grief Experience, and um, very excited to get to know all of these authors. And I figured since I have a platform, I wanted to be able to introduce you guys to all of these authors. One, because the topic goes hand in hand with, the, with Path 11 Productions. We're always researching death and the afterlife, bereavement. How do we get through this really tough time? 
when death, when we go through experiences related to death here on earth. And, and I just love helping to support people and getting the word out about who they are and just making connections and resources. I know we have listeners from all over, and I know we have some New Jersey listeners, and maybe Christy might be able to help you out, or maybe you might be, re- be able to refer some family or friends to her if you are in the New Jersey area. So Christy, why don't you give me a little bit of background? It sounds like you might have known very early on that you wanted to go into the field of mental health because you've been in it for about 15 years mm-hmm. and would just love to hear a little bit about why you chose the grief you know, aspect of it. Because I would say, I don't think a lot of people kind of like sign up and volunteer or like, yes, I just want to work with, with grieving and bereaved you know, patients. Mm-hmm. I do feel like it's a calling as is end-of-life doula. We've had a couple of of end-of-life doulas on the podcast Mm -hmm. as well, so maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that. So Mm -hmm. it does feel like you probably had some sort of calling and would like to learn a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I originally started out with a master or a degree in communication, and so I wanted just to talk to people and maybe do some advertising or marketing, but I didn't find it fulfilling. So that's when I went back for my master's in mental health. And so I've been in the field ever since. It really brought me there, just understanding like my own diversities that I've experienced in life, my own suffering, and really wanted to learn for myself how to navigate through that. And when I was in my master's program, I learned so much just on ways to cope. And it actually lined up perfectly with the direction and way that my life was going. In terms of grief, I don't know where it came from. I was always very intrigued by this idea of death. I think my family thought I was a little bit odd or eccentric, but they went with it. And it was something that I just felt comfortable with. And I I genuinely don't know where it came from. But where the mental health and the grief line up is that when I was in my master's program, that's actually when my mom became sick and that's when she died. And But because of all the work that I was doing through the program and learning about myself, what was helpful, what was unhelpful, it really just merged the two together so that I was able to truly be present for my mom and when she was sick. And then experiencing my own loss and my own grief there, it just really propelled my career into like, this is a passion of mine. This is where I should be. And it, like you said, it really did feel like a calling. Like it wasn't like, oh there's a doubt. It was like, no, this is what I want to learn about. And I think because I've experienced my own losses, it really pushed me further into the educational piece of it. But then recognizing that if I'm able to do it for myself, then other people are able to do it for themselves. And so just an amazing opportunity then to be able to help people walk through that. And so that's where it came from. But I don't know where it originated. I, I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's always interesting, like how our journey just kind of takes twists and turns and we can have really profound moments in our life, like the death of a loved one and how that can really just change our course or maybe give us more focus or, mm-hmm. you know, help us to find more meaning in the grief and um, doing something with that experience. Mm-hmm. So for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about the story of your mom and what had happened and, you know, what her journey was like and how she transitioned? Sure. So it was back in 2011. My mom was really having balancing issues and we couldn't figure out what it was. She didn't know what it was. And so then what happened was the doctor was like, look, if you're not feeling well, we have to get you to an MRI. But well, my mom had a lot of anxiety. And so that's also what helped to get me into the field of mental health is to get more of an understanding of that. 
But because of her anxiety, she couldn't go into certain MRIs or CAT scans. They had to be the open one. Yeah. So they weren't able to get her scheduled for that until like a little while later. But the doctor said, if you're really feeling sick, you have to go to the hospital. And so my mom ended up feeling sick and she went to the hospital. And when she was in the hospital, they diagnosed her with an unidentified mass on her brain. And so that was in March. And so through from March until about August, she went through different chemotherapies. She did, well, they couldn't really do the chemotherapy because of the brain barrier, can't pass that. But she went through a different radiation. They did multiple brain surgeries on her to get to, to get the brain tumor, but the treatments weren't working for her. And so she just kept getting more sick and more sick. Um, and then she really struggled with it. But then also because she was had a brain tumor, her cognitive ability slipped. And so she wasn't really able to process stuff. And so she had a really tough journey. Um, but it, throughout her journey, what the beautiful part was that she lived with so much anxiety that once she was had this brain tumor and they did the different surgeries on it, her anxieties went away. And it was wow. really interesting. And she smoked, you know, she didn't have the best coping skills, but mm -hmm. she smoked. And then because she stopped smoking. So like she was able to transition into this place of, living like more authentically, which is a very weird thing to say when somebody's facing their own death, but she, because she wasn't necessarily processing it in the sense of like, it's the end of my life. So then she was only really sick for seven months. And then five months after she was diagnosed, she was placed on hospice. And so once she was on hospice, it was home hospice and she lived in her house with my father. And so our family just really rallied around her and were able to be there with her throughout the entire process. And actually, towards the last two months, I was able to take leave of absence from my job. And so we were able to be there with her throughout that whole process, which was as terrible it was, it was beautiful to be able to share those moments with her. And yeah, and so then on October 24th, it was the day after my nephew's birthday, she chose to transition. Mm, wow. Yeah. So really interesting. What's your take on why her anxiety might have decreased? Like you said, she was maybe moving into a place of more authenticity. Do you think given the, you know, the circumstances of what she was dealing with, that maybe mm -hmm. the little things, the literal, literal things that would make mm -hmm. her anxious, maybe there was this realization like, I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore because there's mm -hmm. a bigger thing at hand. So I don't even think it was that. No. So what I actually think it was, it was more biological. So whatever was happening okay. in her brain, it must have impacted her, uh, like the anxious part of it, where like her, like almost like her nervous system potentially wasn't activated in the way that it would have been for somebody else whose brain was fully functioning. So while it, it was a blessing in disguise, mm -hmm. that it happened to be her brain that was impacted because her ability to relate to others, there was still like deficits. But the one thing that really soothed out was the anxiety. And we cannot explain it. We, the doctors also can't explain why she didn't. The treatment should have worked, but the treatment didn't work for her. It was like the percent was like for it was like five percent. It only wouldn't work for it was a very low percent. And so that's just how it was. So while in my heart, I would love to say that my mom worked through all these different uh, experiences with a, like an acceptance of her own death. I don't think that was the case. But because cognitively she was in this space of not feeling the anxiety, it helped all of us 
to be able to work through our own grief, anticipatory grief, and our relationship with her to get to a place where we were in a like a, a much more connected way as a family. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And really beautiful that you had the opportunity to be there for two months, you know, take that leave mm-hmm. of absence. And I remember on our author call uh, that mm-hmm. we just had, you had said that uh, you really were very present for the whole process and using mm-hmm. the mindfulness skills that you were learning in, you know, in your career at school mm-hmm. and your job. Um, so can you think back and maybe give some examples of how, what is it like to be present? What does that mean? So for anyone that's listening and maybe they are, they do have a person in their life that's actively dying right now, maybe mm-hmm. some tools that you can you know, give to people of what it means to be mindful and present with someone who's actively dying. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I can definitively remember when, like, when my mom was diagnosed and we were in the hospital, I was reading a mindful book. And so it was all about, like, just sitting there, noticing your breath, acknowledging that you're present, that you're existing, and just follow the in-breath and the out-breath. And I remember when the doctor came into the room, I put the book down and said, just start breathing, just start breathing. And so because I was able to breathe, I was able to bring myself into the space to understand no matter how hard it was, it was a very hard time, but just even just connecting to my own breath and acknowledging that I was breathing in and breathing out was a way to help me to start being present. And it wasn't always easy. It was a challenge, but I tried to show up to the challenge each time. And then another thing that I remember that was really helpful was, especially when I was driving back and forth from the hospital to see my mom. It was, I felt a lot of sadness, of course, you know, and I felt a lot of anger and I felt so many different emotions, but acknowledging those emotions by saying, hello, sadness, you're here with me today. And so just being able to have that acknowledgement and being present with my own emotion created the space for me to sit with the emotion of my mom. And so it was all about, for me, it was all about following my in-breath and my out-breath and then acknowledging each emotion that I felt but trying not to do it in the sense of don't feel sad or I can't feel sad, I can't do this. It was just like breathe and say hello to your sadness. And that was something that really helped throughout because then it, I kept doing that and it just kept building space. And that sounds weird, but it builds like this emotional space or just this capacity to sit with more. And then I was able to do that as it kept going with my mom. So each time we would go into the doctor's office, Before we went in, I would take a moment for myself and connect back to my breath and just be like, stay here. You're in the present. You're at the doctor's. This is going to be hard. You can do this. And then I'd walk in and then I'd find my breath. And then anytime we did any type of appointments, I would try to find my breath and then be with it. Beautiful. Yeah. It reminds me of a book that I read. It was more on Buddhism that talked about taking care of our emotions. And like you said, like, smiling at them, holding them like you would a crying baby. Yeah. You know, what do you need? Like you said, hello, sadness. I feel that you're here. You know, what do you need from me? What can we Mm -hmm. do together? I love that. That, That's Mm -hmm. a really great example. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. So how did, how did the hiking come in? So the hiking came in. So what, again, it goes back to when my mom was sick, but I've always loved to just be outside and walk. Like as kids, it was always like, get out of the house, you know, time to play outside. Don't come back in until X amount of time. So uh, being that I just love being outside, there's something I receive from the oxygen, the energy, and like just what nature has to offer. 
And so when my mom was still alive and she was sick, my sister and I would go for daily because she also was able to take leave of absence from her job. She was on maternity leave too, um, but then she was able to extend it. And so what we would do every single morning, we would meet up at a park and we would walk. And so we would just have conversations of what we thought the future would be like, what we were experiencing. So it, again, it was a mindful approach because it helped us. Well, in the moment, we were able to like walk along a path, see where we were, but then we were able to have these conversations. So I think there was a very large connectedness to outside for me. When my mom died, that's when I got more into the mindfulness and the hiking it's coming together. So what I would do is I would go on a path and it, it when I say hiking, I call it wiking. It's more like walking and hiking, right? Yeah. And so like mixing that together. Mm -hmm. um, but I would be on the path. And so when I was on this path, I would start utilizing a lot of mindfulness and just being like, okay, notice where you are. Notice how your feet are touching the ground. What do you feel beneath you? Is it like a flat path? Are there rocks? And it was a way what I thought I was distracting myself from everything that was going on. But what I was actually doing was bringing myself back to my body. And so then I would notice the birds, I would notice the trees, and it really brought me the, this really sense of peace. And it essentially allowed me to continue to digest everything that was happening with my own grief and with my mom. And I just really felt a connectedness to nature. And so I think in nature, I was also able to look at it and learn lessons from it. Like everything is constantly changing. The way that the water was flowing in the river felt like some of the ways that I was feeling stuck or the days where I was able to flow a little bit more, I was able to see that in nature in ways that I haven't been able to see it otherwise. So then fast forward 12 years, right? And so now I have my own practice. And I was like, and through the training that I've received, a lot of it was ecotherapy and just this idea of connecting back to nature. And it was like, how can I merge the two? That And we're, nobody's really, not saying nobody's doing it, but in our my area particularly, it Therapies in the four walls, but that's not, that's not reality. Like life happens outside of the four walls. So I live in Morris County, which has beautiful hiking trails, but there's one I'm really familiar with and I knew it. So I knew that we can go up like a, an incline and then stop at this beautiful like pond. I wouldn't even call it a lake, but it's beautiful. It's like, and so we sit there and we do a meditation. And then from there, we walk out. And so it was just a way for me to help others find a way to cope. And so the rule is you can come and you don't have to talk. You just have to show up. And we all know why we're there. But along the trail, we'll stop every so often. And then I pull out questions. And I ask people, what are you feeling? Like, what's your grief like? And it's a way for everybody to connect in a like a non-confrontational way. It's not like sitting in a circle, who's next? It's just like, let's be out and enjoy. And then the meditation part was a way to really help people to get an understanding of mindfulness. And like, it's a formal sitting meditation that we do. It's a sound meditation and just listening to the birds. But in grief and in life, like we get taken away by our thoughts. And it's just like, bring it back to what we're experiencing. Just try to bring that back. And so even if they do it once a month, it's turned out to be like a monthly hike. Once a month, you're learning something new and you can then be able to sit with some of this really, really hard suffering, but be able to tolerate it. And if we can learn to trust ourselves and tolerate it, then we can learn to work with it or learn to build capacity for it. And that's really where the hike came from. And since then, I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. 
And so we're taking a break in the summer because there are bears around. And I'm like, I don't want to be responsible for people and bears. I can't do that. We'll start back up in the fall and like really just get back into the element and just be present. And so I'm trying to take those two and put it together because I know how much it helped me and to be able to help somebody else is, I mean, that's a gift. Yeah, that's awesome. So you do it with individuals and groups? Are you doing it more with groups of people? So groups of people for now. And so seeing how it all changes, it's a new process, right? So I'm trying to get an understanding of what's going to work. But for now, it's a hiking group and it's really cool. And the people are really bonding. They connect because it's showing up and we're doing something. I've also done it where I did like a four week group. And so it alternated between like a virtual group and then we met up for a hike and then we did a virtual group and we met up for a hike. And so that seemed to really flow nicely as well. And so the option to do it individually would absolutely exist um, because then there's a more of a chance to do mindfulness. So inspiring. I love that you are just thinking so outside of the traditional box of therapy. And, you know, like you said, life happens outside of these four, four walls. And there really is just something beautiful about being in nature when you are releasing emotions. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like the energy of the earth, the trees, the wind, the sun, the ground, the earth beneath you, you know, that just has the ability to like absorb that and really like Mm -hmm. clear the aura and the biofield around us. So that's amazing. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure people are thinking like, oh my God, why didn't I think of this? (laughs) So those things like post-it notes, right? And invention, you're like, this is so simple. Why didn't I think of this beforehand? Mm -hmm. So you know, I'm sure that we have a lot of therapists that also listen to this podcast. And I have a feeling you are going to inspire some clinicians who love to be outdoors and love to hike to do mm. something similar to this. This is would this be amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I have you on, I'd also like to hear a little bit more about your end of life training and being an end of life doula. And I learned about that a couple of years ago when we were filming at the Afterlife Awareness Conference in Florida. And I didn't even know that there were such things. And now I do know. And I think it's beautiful. And I've always said every time I talk to one, like, I I just feel like maybe later in life when I'm retired, I may come into that because I really loved being a hospice volunteer. And there is something beautiful about, you know, being there for people and helping that transition, you know, at end of life. So what has your experience been with that? Have you just done a training or have you actually utilized the training with some clients? So primarily the training. So I haven't done it with clients. I used to work uh, for an organization that helped people to like, how do I, like they were able to, we, what we did was we helped with them with the medical decision-making and understanding what it is, what quality of life meant for them. And it didn't matter what it was. It was like quality over quantity. It didn't matter. But it was having these conversations, these really tough, hard conversations with people about what they wanted to see at end of life and like what was important to them. Like who did they want beside them? Did they want music playing? Like what they really wanted. And that was really like the meat and potatoes of the work. But it took a while to get there. But it was something that I found like so beautiful. And this was after my mom had died. And so again, that really catapulted where I went. But I love doing that so much, like the meat and potatoes of it. Like I love doing that work. And I did a lot of that work with my mom, not necessarily at the end of her life and having those conversations because she was incapable of having some conversations. But we talked about life and like death more like, again, because I had this fascination with it. We would talk about like, what would you want at your funeral? What would you want at the end of life? And so just having that understanding and be able to 
companion her and sit with her as she was dying and give her what we thought would be what she wanted, like having family around, like playing songs and all this. That made me want to get more of an understanding of it. And so I did the training and that training was phenomenal. They really broke it down into manageable like chunks and like legacy work, mapping emotion. And it really gave tangible, tangible interventions to use. And I don't, so I don't work with clients who at the end of their life, but I absolutely use those strategies and interventions when I'm working with people who are grieving because it's all like that's it's all death related. And then it brings up grief brings up our own mortality. Right. And it's just like, oh, like that's going to happen. And like, OK, what's within our control? And sometimes what's within our control is what do we want that to look like? We've learned from this experience. What can we move go, going forward? And then I've had the privilege of being with other family members towards their end of their life. And I've done, I've sat vigil for one of my grandmothers. I was there for one of my other grandmothers as well. I wasn't there for either of their actual passings, uh, but for my mom's passing, I was holding her hand. And it was like, that was a blessing. Like it was terrible when it happened. I'm not, like, that was not a beautiful moment in the moment. But in reflection, to be able to see my mother's last breath when she saw me take my first breath, Mm. that was mind boggling. So to try to turn that into like a beautiful type of situation, it was like, how do I learn from this? And so I think that's where the end of life stuff came in. And like to be able just to have more tools in my basket. So in the case that somebody does call upon me or that's where I end up at a certain time to be feel comfortable sitting vigil for somebody. Um, is a true honor. And so that's really where the end of life work came in. I find it so fascinating, the end of life work. It's a privilege. You know, we often don't get to see that part of life. And so it makes it really scary. And for some it is. And so I'm not saying that all deaths are the same because some death is really scary. But when, for me, when I got more of an understanding around it, what happens for natural deaths, because sudden and traumatic death is different than a natural, it just allowed me to view it in a different way. And so I'm very thankful for that and for the training. And that was phenomenal. Yeah. And really a gift too the fact that, you know, you were kind of obsessed with death from the beginning and like talk about it. You know, I think that you guys were pretty lucky that you were able to have some of those conversations beforehand. And do you have any tips or advice if people are like, oh my gosh, I could never talk to my, my uncle about this or my dad about this or you know, how does one start to initiate that conversation when people are healthy about, mm-hmm. hey, you know, what would you like when you die? Because mm-hmm. I know that a lot of people feel awkward, like there's no great time to bring this up. How do I initiate it? How do you how do you initiate a conversation with somebody that, you know, or feel like is just going to say, I don't want to talk about this. So mm-hmm. tips or tricks with that. Yeah. So for one, it's being super confident with what it is that you want. So if I know what I want and it's it's second nature for me, I might not even ask the other person what they want, but bring it up in a conversation like, you know what, when I die, like I, when I die, like I want an ice cream truck in the parking lot of the funeral home, you know, or wherever I, I decide to be laid out, like I want to, I want an ice cream truck. So I try to do a little bit lighter and then see what people, I'll usually get back like, you think about that that's and yeah like I do like is there anything that you would want or like have you ever thought about that so almost like easing it in like if I know somebody isn't gonna be like receptive to it and other than that like for me it's diving in like hey have you ever thought of this and but I don't take it personally so if somebody's like no 
oh, okay. And is that something that you would want to think about? No. Okay. Then they're not ready. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, and then I might share again, like, uh, I would love to have like a monkey. Like, how are we going to get the monkey to my funeral? You know, it's just something of that. And that's what I used to say. And that's how I actually brought it up with my mom. Because mm-hmm. I was I was taking a college course and it was about life and death. And a lot of the work that we were doing, we're trying to understand of what do you want for the end of your life? And it might have been with organ donating. Like, I want to be an organ donor. And my mom was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And I would talk her through it. And then I would be like, and, and then I, if we can get a monkey at my funeral, like, let's do that. And then she, like, she was not receptive always to death. And, but then she was like, oh, I want Elvis playing in the background. I want my family present. And we were able to do that for her. Um, but where I would start, I, I bring humor, but I would start light and, but be confident in what I know I want so that I can confidently speak about it, mm-hmm. you know, and just big, oh, I do think about this and this is what's important to me. And like, I have people in my life who aren't comfortable, but I'm like, okay, but like, this is what I want. Like, these are my wishes. So if you can follow through on them, that's important to me. Then they don't have to share what they want. But if I talk about it, it might open opportunity for them to even be like, what do I want? Right. Just to even think about it. Just to plant the seed. Like I'm a seed planter. Yeah. You know, and whatever, whatever grows from that grows from. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah, exactly. So that answered it. Oh, absolutely. But let's talk a little bit about your love for ice cream, right? Because there's going to be an ice cream truck, right? And you also love pizza. So what's your favorite ice cream? Like if you had an ice cream truck at your funeral, like what what's your favorite flavor and what do you hope people might partake in? So like, and I'm very simple, like I love a good soft serve. I love a swirl soft serve dipped in chocolate. And if I can and they can do it dipped in sprinkles first, Oh. And then dipped in chocolate. And that's that's what I love. And I for hard ice cream, I do love a good mint chocolate chip. Wow, and so in Denville, we have one of the best, and I'm partial, but we have one of the best homemade ice cream spots that they I've only been in Denville for a few years and it's been here well beyond I my family has ever known about Denville, but they have such good ice cream. So it's it's amazing because it's only a walk to the center of town. But I do have like like inflammational stuff, so I shouldn't eat as much ice cream. So I've had to pull back a little bit on my ice cream intake. So I'm very upset about this, but that's okay. Uh-huh. Well, the, the monkey thing might be a challenge. I think that's I'm you're the first person that I've ever heard that would like a monkey there. That's yeah. awesome. Ice cream truck, you know, it's that's really creative too. It's like you uh-huh. know, people some more ideas yeah. here. <laughs> So, all right. So let's talk a little bit because I know we're winding down and kind of finishing up here. But so with your private practice, are you accepting new clients? Do you accept health insurance? I mean, if somebody is listening to this and they live close to you, maybe wants to try this group hike, how can people, you know, get a hold of you? And are are you accepting people into your practice? Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm constantly accepting people into the practice. If there's a minimal, like minimal weight, there's a weight, but I try to figure out ways how to get somebody in. But the reality of it is there's there's not enough therapists, you know what I mean? And so we have to figure out ways to create space, which isn't always easy. And that's where groups come in. So in addition to the hiking groups, I also run six week groups. Um, and so my fall calendar will be coming out soon because, again, in the summer, I take a break um, bears, but then also for for like the the other six week groups. And within the six week groups, I try to break it down into specific loss groups. So young adult, partner loss, um, child loss, and so that. And so they run for six weeks and they go throughout the year. 
And so that'll all be on my website. And so my website is daylightgrief.com. And so I try to keep it as updated as possible, um, especially with the different groups. And there's you can sign up for the mailing list. And then I let people know when the different groups are going to start. Or if I have like pop-up groups, like I'll do some around the holidays um, for people to get together and just trying to be creative with it, right? And like how to just get people in a community. And then I do accept insurance. So I'm in network with most major insurance companies. So people could reach out and then I walk people through that process to see if I'm considered in network for them. And then we figure that piece out. Awesome. Wonderful. Yeah, there is a mental health crisis. There really aren't enough therapists for the people you know, who need to be seen. And maybe could you speak to before we end here, because I know some people really would say, I'm not a group person. I don't want to be in a group. I don't want to talk about this in a group. I just want Mm one-on-one. But if you can't find a therapist, I have actually found when I used to facilitate groups as a therapist, Mm -hmm. that more healing and deeper healing happen in group sessions than individual, you Mm -hmm. know? So maybe for anybody that might be listening that feels like, I don't know if I want to do the group thing, what's your experience and what would you say about the group experience Uh, versus individual? I'm a believer and lover of groups. And so the power of group, the power of cohesiveness, the power of not feeling alone is enough to bring in some sort of healing or just like a feeling of contentment, like knowing that you're okay, that you're amongst others who understand what you're going through. And in the individual therapy, like I can absolutely provide that for somebody, but to have a collective group of people who are going through something similar is something that individual therapy can not provide for somebody. And so just knowing that you're not alone could really help soften some of what it is that you're experiencing or what people are experiencing. And then it does help to really open up pathways that might not have been able to be found in individual therapy that allow you to do deeper work. Because not only are you sharing, and like in my groups, you don't have to share. Like my rule is don't share unless you want to. So no one's expecting that, but it's like, it feels like ah, I can share. And most people end up sharing anyway. But to hear what somebody else is going through could also then be like, oh, wait, I experienced that too, but I didn't have words for that. Now I do. And now that makes it um, tangible and it makes it more manageable for me to get an understanding of. So the next time that scary experience comes in, oh, wait, that's that's what that person said they went through. I get it. And so that's something that individual work can't always provide, you know, and so that's where power of groups come into play. Yeah, I 100% agree. So your website again is daylightgrief.com. Yeah, .com. Okay, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Thank you. Um, And then Christy, like I said, is also going to be writing a chapter in our book. It is called The Grief Experience, and that can be purchased. We'll put that link in the show notes. That's actually through my my other business website, Hannah's Healing slash The Grief Experience. I don't know if it's The Grief Experience book or the, just The Grief Experience, but it'll be in the show notes and you guys can find that there if you would like to purchase a copy of that. And I hope you all really enjoyed our talk today. I know I learned a lot. I felt very inspired by Christy. I think she shared some amazing ideas. And, you know, maybe there's somebody out there that isn't a therapist, but can get together with some people, you know, maybe who are grieving and just get outside, get outside and hike. So lots, lots of stuff was covered in this short period of time. And please reach out to Christy if you're in the area, get her website. Are you on social media too? Yeah. So on Instagram, Mm -hmm. Instagram. Okay. We'll also put that in the show notes as well. 
All right, everyone. Well, take care and I will bring you another great guest next week. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's show. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate and review the Path 11 podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, this podcast is made possible by our sponsor, Path 11 TV. Visit path11tv.com to start a seven-day free trial of exclusive video content on consciousness, healing, and life after death. That's path11tv.com. And be sure to use coupon code PODCAST30 to take 30% off your annual membership. Start satisfying your spiritual curiosity with a membership to Path 11 TV today. Bye for now.